and by propane. Propane is the energy for everyone, especially farmers. Environmentally friendly propane can fuel most anything on the farm. See how at propane.com. One year ago today, we were trying to figure out how long it would take for Russia to overrun Ukraine and what a potential disruption of supplies from the Black Sea would mean for the grain and the oilseed markets. We'll discuss how the invasion continues to influence grain flows today, and we will get industry reaction to another outdated land use study. Live from the embattled Midwestern climate via Farm Journal broadcast, this is AgriTalk. This morning, it's a Friday for Reaper Hall with panelist Jim Wiesmeyer and yours truly. Later, we'll welcome Emily Score from Growth Energy. And right after the news, Jennifer Scheich from Farm Journal's Pork. I'm handsome newsman Davis Michelson, and now the host of AgriTalk, Chip Flory. Hey, Davis. How you doing this morning, buddy? Really good. 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 So, Glad. It's only 18 yeah. degrees here. Yeah, we're five. We, we've we made the recovery from sub-zero temperatures Yow. earlier this morning. But, uh, yeah, we're only about five degrees up here right now. So it is a chilly morning, no question about that, to wrap up the week. Welcome. Welcome to AgriTalk. Glad that you have decided to spend a little bit of time with us this morning. Uh, the Dow is off 435 points right now. Uh, the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index came in. A little hotter than what the trade was looking for. Uh, more concerned that the Fed is going to have to work harder to get inflation under control. Seems like, Davis, we just can't catch a break on this economic data to slow down the Fed at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's just no traction here. Right, right. It, uh, it, it is becoming more and more troubling that uh, these interest rates are i i i don't want to say that it's going to ch- completely change the way that we are doing business but it's going to it the longer it sticks around the longer it sticks around the 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 increase in interest rates uh the more difficult it is going to be to uh to not change the way that we are doing business it's well and it's a, the case they turned up they turned up the heat too slowly right They should have cauterized this deal, and instead they just sort of put a warm blanket around it with uh, the interest rate increases. You you were talking about this, what, is it a year ago? Oh, yeah. They should raise a full point and get it over with. Get it over with. Let's go. This is getting out of control. Let's fly. Uh Yeah, exactly. We'll talk about that with Wiesmeyer uh, when we get him on here for the free-for-all. He's fresh back from Missouri, so looking forward to the Mm -hmm. conversation with him. We'll find out what he learned. All right, Davis, go ahead and get started. What you got in the news? Well, Chip, on the economy, personal income in the U.S. rose by, uh, let's see, one, that's 0.6%, call. I was going to try and do it in tenths. I couldn't do the math. (laughs) 0.6% from a month earlier in January that missed market expectations of 1% growth. The increase in income was led by both services-producing industries and goods-producing industries. Meanwhile, government social benefits were down in January. Core personal consumption expenditure prices in the U.S., which exclude food and energy, jumped by six-tenths of 1% in January. That's the most since August. And let me just toss this one in here, too. 
2022 ended with the lowest personal savings rate since 2005, while oh. household debt climbed to its highest level in two decades. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. You know, this personal consumption expenditure index, that's what the Fed is focused on when they're trying to figure out just what the inflation rate is. So if it comes in hotter than expected, I would guess we're going to be yeah. looking at a at a half-point increase, not a quarter-point increase uh, at the next Fed meeting. Well, Chip, according to USDA, American ag exports in fiscal 2023 are projected at $184.5 billion down $5.5 billion from the November forecast. The export forecasts for all major commodity groups are down. With the largest drops projected for corn, sorghum, and soybeans, China is expected to remain the largest market for U.S. ag exports. USDA's Economic Research Service released its 2023 farm income forecast at the Ag Outlook Forum. Kerry Latowski, senior economist with the ERS, talks about the numbers. We're forecasting that farm sector income had reached record highs in 2022 and will decrease in 2023 as commodity prices fall and total expenses remain elevated. First, net cash farm income in 2023 is forecast to increase about 20% relative to 2022. Net farm income is forecast to decline about 16 in 2023. That from Kerry Latowski from the ERS. Chip? It, well, you know, the, the idea of what net farm income is going to be doing here in 2023, we've been talking about the increase in, in, interest, in interest rates, in input mm-hmm. costs, the yep. fact that this is going to be the most expensive corn crop we've ever produced. Uh, yeah, it's going to bite into the into net farm income. Well, Ag Secretary Vilsack says a dispute settlement request under the USMCA is likely coming relative to Mexico's decree on barring imports of GMO corn. USDA annual farms and land in farms report shows the country's largest farms with sales of $1 million or more operate nearly 26% of farmland. Ten years ago, 3% of farms made up that category. The average farm size for 2022 446 acres, up one acre from 445 in 2021. Quickly here, some 141 countries backed a resolution in the U.N. General Assembly demanding a Russian withdrawal from Ukraine. Meanwhile, China's President Xi Jinping presented a peace plan for Ukraine. (laughs) And finally, Brazilian meatpackers said they will be able to keep supplying China with beef despite a ban via plants in neighboring South American countries. Chip. Right. All right. Thank you so much, Davis. Let's bring in Jennifer Scheich, editor of Farm Journal's Pork. Good morning, Jennifer. Good morning. So uh, it's National FFA Week. Uh, Let's celebrate that a little bit, Jennifer. What's your story? Well, I've actually been kind of thinking about how hard it is for people to tell their story, right? I was interviewing a farmer the other day, and he just said, I'm not very good at this. I don't like to talk about myself. And I thought, you know, isn't that something we all struggle with? Because it is hard to tell your story. And it it just made me reflect on how how have I grown in being able to do that over the years. And I really credit it to FFA and spending so much time practicing over and over and over again. And I think that repetition, whether it's practicing a speech or working on oral reasons or just introducing yourself to people and and talking some of those things that we get a chance to do when we're young and FFA. I really think those have helped me become better at it and more comfortable at it. 
and maybe just more willing to to try, if that yeah. makes sense. Oh, it certainly does. It certainly does. You've got to have a certain level of comfort if you're going to engage those that are curious about what is going on out on the farm. If you're going to engage in them in a conversation, you got to have the confidence to go ahead and do that. And for for farmers to be able to tell their story, I, Jennifer, I was never in FFA. We didn't have it, but I was mm-hmm. actively involved in 4-H. And you know, here I am. 40 years later, and I'm telling you, I'm telling you the communication skills that I gained through 4-H and that you gained through FFA and that your kids are gaining today giving oral arguments, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. it it goes a long ways. Good stuff, Jennifer. Thank you. Thank you. All right. That is Jennifer Scheich, editor of Farm Journal's Pork. Read the story. Go to www.porkbusiness.com. AgriTalk is brought to you by United Animal Health where their science allows you to maximize your genetic potential. Learn more at unitedanh.com. From powering irrigation engines to warming buildings, propane has always been a part of American farm life. Now you can be a part of propane's future and save money at the same time. The Propane Farm Incentive Program is a research initiative that provides farmers up to $5,000 towards the purchase of new propane-powered equipment. In exchange, participants share performance data to make tomorrow's ag operations more cost-effective, more efficient, and more environmentally friendly with propane. Getting started is simple. Visit propane.com slash farm incentive to see if you're eligible. We don't make the news, we render it. Agritalk. Welcome to the free for all right here on Agritalk. Glad that you are with us. Davis is here. Hello. Joining us for the conversation, pro farmer policy analyst Jim Wiesmeyer. Jim, good morning, sir. How are you? Pretty good, Chip. We had a little over 80 degrees here yesterday in D.C. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Crazy. And we were (laughs) below zero overnight here. This this, uh, temperature deviation from one from the middle of the country to the east coast has been absolutely nuts did you get any severe weather uh earlier in the week in fact i had a big spruce tree that got pulled out by the roots and that's hard to occur and yeah uh, so yes yes yeah wow wow uh so what'd you do you, you just get the chainsaw out go out there and split up some firewood is that what you <laughs> you know me help is only a phone call away <laughs> outstanding very good so guys here we are february 24th 2023 one year after russia invaded ukraine and we are still wondering you know what i think the questions have changed a little bit you know, a year ago right now, Jim, I think we were asking the question, how long is it going to take for Russia to overrun Ukraine? Now, I think we're asking the question, how long is it going to take for Ukraine to push the troops out? Is that fair? Yes, if they get the uh, adequate uh, uh, aid on, on the military side, uh, Chip. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that's a sensitive subject. Oh, yeah, It absolutely is a sensitive subject, but... 
you know, we're not going to push them out with dollar bills. We need, they need artillery. They need weapons. They need. That's what I meant. Weapons. They need the proper weapons. And, and uh, the Western countries have delayed the proper uh, 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 equipment for, you know, yep. for them to do that. Right. Well, I think the attitude for so long was, hey, let's see if these guys are really willing to fight. I, I think the Ukrainians have exhibited that willingness to fight for their country. Uh, and I think there is now a greater willingness to make sure that they've got the weaponry that they need to to drive uh, to drive Russians back. Don't it, it, I mean, it's but not just the U.S. But, you know, Chip, in my recent speeches throughout farm country, it always comes up as a question of how long can the U.S. keep pumping out billions of dollars yeah. to Ukraine. So right. that's why I think Repu some Republicans in Congress are starting to at least want an accountability on this. Well, and there was speculation that I heard, and Jim, maybe you can confirm or deny this, that part of Biden's visit over to Ukraine was maybe to talk to uh, Zelensky and say, hey, look, man, we can't, we can't do this forever. At some point, the well just dries up. Was there anything to that? Well, no, I don't, I don't know. I'd have to check on that. But his going over to the war zone was a very clear signal that at least he sees the U.S. staying as, as far as a big supporter of Ukraine. So I think it could be the opposite. Now, when, when he went over there, though, it was sort of billed as this bold move. He's gone over in secret under the cover of darkness. And then afterward, we get Jake Sullivan saying, yeah, no, but we did let Russia know that we were going over there, um, it, it, that doesn't make sense to me. Well, if you view this as I do, as a proxy war between the U.S. and uh, yeah. Western allies versus uh, Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea, it takes on a greater a sphere of, uh, uh, of importance. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Yesterday at USDA's Ag Outlook Forum, Jim, there was a presentation by a Ukrainian official that seems to have made quite the impression on those that saw it. There were gasp, plural, in the audience on some of his information, uh, Chip, and that usually doesn't happen. It was a eye-opening and ear-opening uh, speech that uh, what, what we called it a wow uh, your, your speech. So absolutely, he he uh, 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 descriptively uh, talked about the the uh, the impacts of the war on uh, the agriculture in Ukraine, and obviously it's getting worse, not better. Yeah, what was what were some of the details that he shared that that caught you know obviously caught some some people by literally, surprise? Yeah, farmers literally running from their fields as the as the uh, you know missiles uh, came down on them, and it it goes from there just the death and destruction across the whole country. See, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Ever since the Russians put that missile right through the bedroom window of a major, if not the major Ukrainian grain trader. Ever since that time, none of this surprises me. I don't know why it surprised them that there's actually war and misery in Ukraine. It just brought it home, Chip. 
I think that that's what it is. Or maybe okay. uh, the majority were not as clearly focused on it that, you know, we have to cover it every day, you know. Yeah. But uh, it, 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 it was an impact. It's one of the most impactful speeches in a long time at the Outlook Conference. Interesting. What what kind of an impact might that have? That I don't know. But uh, all I know is you're you're seeing a number of countries. China, for example, offered their 12-point peace plan. That was not really a peace plan. It was for domestic politics. To me, it was a nothing burger. Although in it, they, they did want to have the U.S. and Western allies stop uh, sanctions on Russia, and they want uh, faster uh, uh, exports from Ukraine. I thought that was the key for, for their 12-point proposal. Well, okay. on the other side, you've got 141 UN nations, um, or you've got 141 nations backing, I should say, a UN yep. resolution demanding the Russian withdrawal from Ukraine. But I don't hear an or else in here. <laughs> it's not scary. You can't chase them out with pencils either. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's uh, and and you know with China and their 12 point uh, plan or document, it's so orderly. Uh, isn't well, it? <laughs> it, it it does feel that way. And, you know, of course, China wants a ceasefire. I think Russia might use a ceasefire to its advantage right now because they need to regroup again is what it looks like. Uh, but when it comes to China, Beijing just wants what Russia's got inside its borders. Right, Jim? Yeah. Yeah and, and the, yeah, and the China document was just a collection of uh, bland, familiar talking points. So, yeah. no, the, the, the expectation, however, coming in, that this could be a major peace plan, but, it, you, you know, like their balloon, it imploded. Yeah. Hey-oh. Yeah. Okay. Is this, it almost feels like maybe, you know what, actually, keep it up with the war thing in Ukraine so we can continue to position and jockey on Taiwan. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Convenient cover. It, that's how it feels to me. So, Jim, what is the status of the deal, uh, the grain deal that allows exports of Ukrainian grain from the Black Sea? Well, it, it ends uh, without any extension on March the 18th. And yeah. Ukraine actually wants a broader uh, export deal, putting in some more uh, port outlets, Chip. And, right. uh, uh, so it remains to be seen. Like the last time, we'll probably go into the uh, few days before the deadline and, the, the, you know, there'll be an announcement right. of an extension. Right. You know, one of the, it, it wouldn't surprise me if, the Russians just decide, no, we're not going to do this. And then you watch Russian grain exports continue to increase because they are, yes. you know, as They'll they take, take the Ukrainian grain. Yeah. Yeah. That's called war. That's called war. Yeah. Yeah. And there, there is a sense that, yeah, it's bad and missiles are going through windows and all that sort of stuff. But I, I just, I have this weird sense we have yet to see Russia really, really flex in this deal. And that, that concerns me. I've been me. told, yeah, I agree with you, Davis. I've been told that if Putin starts bombing Ugh. the beautiful buildings in Ukraine's capital, Kiev, that means he's he's had it, that he's going to go huh. full bore because he wants to protect those beautiful buildings yeah. in Kiev that he counts as part of Russia. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Well, when you, Davis, when you said really flex, my mind yeah. went to nuclear. Mm -hmm. 
um, which is something that I, I I think is still on the table for Russia. I haven't seen anything that that suggests it's not, Jim. No, and their former president, Medeev, or however you pronounce his name, more than signaled that that was a possibility again earlier this week. So, no, it's not off their options list. Yeah, I still I don't know that they would even need to do that. I've, I'm still not confident that we've seen the full force of just the Russian ground military. If mm. Ukraine is able to keep up with Russia, something just doesn't add up here for me. Well, I think I, I think what it equals is a you know a Russian force that just wasn't as strong See, I don't as buy that as the Russians thought it they just didn't have the strength that they thought they had yeah, i think maybe. is what it means i don't know i don't know oh boy i hope we don't get to a nuclear flex that's oh, for I sure know. we've got emily score coming up next from powering irrigation engines to warming buildings propane has always been a part of american farm life now you can be a part of propane's future and save money at the same time The Propane Farm Incentive Program is a research initiative that provides farmers up to $5,000 towards the purchase of new propane-powered equipment. In exchange, participants share performance data to make tomorrow's ag operations more cost-effective, more efficient, and more environmentally friendly with propane. Getting started is simple. Visit propane.com slash farm incentive to see if you're eligible. Time for Markets Now with the experts from ProFarmer. Joining us now, ProFarmer editor Brian Grady. Beach. it feels like we're doing some technical damage in the wheat market, the corn market. Uh, what, what's your take on what's happening? Yeah, that's my take. Uh, the uh, the winter wheat markets in particular, SRW futures, uh, they dropped down to the, the January low, matched it, and uh, uh, held for now. So we'll see. But uh, just heavy wave of, of selling there. You know, it's driven by the dollar uh, surging here and, and uh, at the highest level since early January, up more than 600 points at the moment. And, and uh, that was driven by the, the PCE uh, price index yeah. uh, came in stronger than expected. So that's the Fed's preferred inflation gauge. And, and uh, all indications now are that the Fed is going to be more aggressive than uh, what the market had priced in. And uh, that's having a negative impact on uh, export-driven markets, uh, dollar-driven markets like wheat and, and corn. Right, right. Gotcha. Okay. Soy complex, we do have some strength in the meal market. Why? Well, Argentina, I mean, their yep. crop continues to, to suffer, and, and uh, they account for about 40% of global meal trade. So uh, that, that market's rebounded. It's trying to pull the uh, the soybeans off their lows. So uh, setting up for a very interesting close, I think, yep. uh, within the grain and soy markets to see which one wins out, whether it's wheat and corn uh, to the downside or, or meal to the upside. Yep, cattle complex getting ready for the cattle on feed report this afternoon. Absolutely. And it should be a relatively friendly uh, cattle on feed report, no matter what the numbers say. Um, you know, the underlying numbers are that uh, we continue to decline in the feedlots. Uh, yeah. So uh, that that should be relatively supportive. Waiting on cash trade to develop here, too. And then hog futures are mildly weaker. Thanks, buddy. We'll talk to you later. Pro Farmer Editor Brian Grady, Markets Now. Opinions expressed on AgriTalk do not necessarily reflect the views of Farm Journal Broadcasting, affiliate stations, or sponsors. The best talkers in ag, including you. Join the conversation on AgriTalk. Call us at 855-4-TALK-AG. 
Welcome back to AgriTalk and the Free for All. Davis Michelson is with us, Jim Wiesmeyer. And joining us in the conversation right now, Emily Score, CEO of Growth Energy. Good morning, Emily. How are you? Good morning, Chip. I'm terrific. Thanks for having me. Yep. Glad that you are here. Uh, you know, this is getting to be some old news here, but Tyler Lark at the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin in Madison released another study. And I'm not even going to say that it raised anxiety in the ethanol industry, but it has added to the frustration of dealing with another outdated piece of work. Emily, what's your take? Well, Chip, you we've been here before. You and I had yeah. a conversation last year about a Tyler Lark study. I mean, yeah. here's the frustrating thing. You've got an individual who he clearly has an ax to grind, and he's straining to look for potential negative impacts of biofuels, and he's constantly coming short. He's failing to establish any cause and effect. So, you know, he's trying to undermine, undermine the value of our contribution to the clean energy future. Fortunately, we actually at Growth have got two fantastic studies completely rebutting what he's been claiming about kind of the overstating what the impact on the environment. We've submitted them to EPA, but it's just, it's noise that we have to constantly refute. Yeah. Um, and it's frustrating. It is. It's very frustrating. Yeah, absolutely. This latest study is called, uh, is titled Interactions Between U.S. Biofuels Policy and the Endangered Species Act. So a little bit of a different angle on it, but it's still all about land use and, and uh, not quite understanding exactly what the impacts of the RFS of biofuels are on land use. It is. And, and you know, he's I mean, last year we had Argonne National Lab, USDA Department of Energy, a lot of, of private and public uh, scientists coming out debunking. So once again, he's overstating land use change. He's claiming there's been substantially substantial expansion in the use of cropland to produce biofuels. That's simply blatantly not the case. And what he's saying is we need more research into the impact of the RFS on the Endangered Species Act. Well, here's the good news. We've actually done that research. Uh, we've got two studies, Rambal Group um, and Environmental Health and Engineering have looked at, into it. Here's what they've said. The, R, the best available science shows the RFS either has no effect or is not likely to adversely affect any listed species or critical habitat. There's just no there there. The emperor has no clothes. Hmm. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So um, the consensus on this issue, I think, is clear. And Lark is the outlier. Is, is that the best way to sum it up? Absolutely. So the okay. consensus of independent universities, of government, national labs, government agencies, the consensus is biofuels have a lot of good to do for the environment. We reduce the carbon intensity. We're reducing toxic emissions. So let's move on from this anti-biofuels discussion. And let's talk about getting more biofuels into the fuel supply. That's what we need for the environment. That's what we need for the climate. Listen to you taking me right to the next uh, topic here. That's E15. Uh, are we going to see some positive movement on making E15 available year round? I, I think we will. So we've, I mean, we need a federal fix. We, we want to be done with this right. once and for all. And, and the hope there, that would be legislation. Um, I think we're going to see legislation introduced uh, in, in the U.S. Congress shortly. Um, I think the most immediate opportunity is, is what the governors have petitioned EPA for, which is basically, we want parity between E10 and E15. We want to be able to sell it in our eight states throughout the Midwest. 
EPA has yet to respond. Chip, I think we're going to see something, um, you know, I think we'll see something sooner rather than later, hopefully out of the agency. And if okay. the agency, you know, starts the rulemaking process to grant this, here's what we're looking at. The eight okay. states combined, they represent 15% of total national fuel demand and about half of all stations selling E15. So that would be a positive step forward. Right, right. Very good. This legislative fix, is this removing the need for the Reed vapor pressure waiver? Is that what you're... Exactly. It would hold? Exactly. Okay. It would. It leg, the, Basically, Congress would bring the rule up to speed from, from yeah. 30 years ago, and you it would... It would eliminate the need for any of this conversation. So the cleanest um, thing that we can see, like a final solution would be Congress changes the law. Um, they allow summer sales of fuels, 10 or more percent ethanol. And we've got some really good momentum. We had bills introduced in the last Congress. We've got um, we've got some in the petroleum sector actually supportive of this because they understand. Yeah. how. So yep. we've got some forward movement, but it's still a big hill to climb for us. Okay. All right. Jim Davis, jump in here if you've got any questions. Well, a couple quick ones. What is taking EPA so long to issue a decision <laughs> on the year round? That's one. Two is with the divided Congress, what, what do you think are the odds on, on, on getting changes in the RFS? And three, and I think more, most important, the clean fuels credit begins in 2025. Will conventional ethanol qualify? Okay, that's a lot. Let's start with the first one was, what is taking EPA so long? Gosh, I wish I had a, a good answer for you. We continue to talk at every level of the agency and have our congressional champions weigh in as well. Um, Administrator Regan spoke to my members last fall in September and said, this is something we're committed to doing and we're gonna have it done by the summer of 2023. So I think honestly, it's being hung up in politics. And you've yeah. got some in the petroleum sector who are pushing back, claiming this is gonna raise the cost of fuel claiming it's going to be disruptive. And so I think that's what's that's the Emily score version of, I think, why we haven't seen more movement um, out of Congress, you know, or excuse me, out of EPA. Now, with respect to what we can see out of the Congress. All right. So the good news is you've got bipartisan support for biofuels. And if we can get a couple of those senators that represent kind of some of the, the oil interests and help them understand why year round sales of E15, it's better for fuel supply. This is this allows us to fulfill um, Congress's intent with respect to the renewable fuel standard. You know, maybe there's a chance that we could we could move something through. But for the most part, you know, it, Congress is very divided. It's a lot of hand to hand combat. So I think broadly speaking, we're going to see more biofuels work coming out of the administration in the next two years than we are out of Congress. OK. All right. And then and about the, the credit. Yeah. So that this is the, the this is coming out of the Inflation Reduction Act, right? Yes. So the Clean Fuel Production Credit yes. that, that goes into yes. effect. Well, that's yep. really that is really exciting news for the industry. We were able to secure a series of tax incentives and credits in the Inflation Reduction Act that will allow us to continue to compete and really demonstrate our performance as a low carbon fuel. Mm -hmm. So the, the clean fuel production credit, it goes into effect January 1st, 2025, and it's a tech neutral credit. Whatever you do, however you reduce the carbon intensity of your fuel, if you get it below 50, you're gonna start getting some tax incentives. What's most important for us, you know, we is, so that's the rule, we've got the law, it's fantastic. Treasury has to come up with guidelines on some of the details. 
What we want from Treasury is granularity and specificity. We want them to recognize every little nip and tuck that's taking place at the plant to reduce carbon intensity. Are you using renewable electricity? Um, are you, you know, what are you, what are you partnering with your growers? Are you, do you have carbon capture technology that you can deploy? So we are really encouraging Treasury to look closely, to be granular, to be specific. That's to the benefit of the industry. I think, you know, we won't see any guidelines coming out from them until at earliest, probably the end of this year. Yeah. Well, getting granular on it now is is obviously very important. I mean, if we would, if the RFS and the wording around the reed vapor pressure would have been a little more granular, uh, we may <laughs> yeah. not be having to deal with that issue right now. Um, Emily, I wonder if, uh, if uh, the, the clean fuel standard might might answer some of the objections, however spurious they may be, of uh, detractors like Lark. Would this does this does this help us on that sort of front in any way? You know, great question. It does. So the good news with with the clean fuel production credit is they're using the Department of Energy Argonne National Lab GREET model. That's the gold standard of carbon modeling for our industry because it's updated annually. It has the most agricultural inputs. So that's good news for us. What Lark is saying, you know, we that's that's kind of off to the side for us with respect to this this credit. Um, what we need is for Treasury to say, okay, but we're going we're going to be really granular, and we're going to look at plant by plant as opposed to here's kind of one one number for the yeah. industry as a whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. We've only got about 30 seconds left. You've been traveling, I know. What are you hearing from the countryside, Emily? Oh, I have so much fun when I've been, I've been visiting a lot of plants this first quarter. You know, there's so much excitement and optimism about the future, about where we can go with diversifying what's coming out of the ethanol industry. They're excited about the incentives and the Inflation Reduction Act. You know, can we get to a point where we're, we are a feedstock for sustainable aviation fuel? So, it's really exciting because every yeah. plant is kind of they're tweaking what they're doing in different ways because we all know in the industry we, we got to compete in a low carbon economy and we know we can do it we can do it really well and they're okay. excited to see what excellent. happens in the future excellent emily thank you so much for making time for us uh, we will talk with you again soon always a pleasure all right that is emily score ceo of growth energy davis and jim we're going to stick around we're going to wrap up the free for all next From powering irrigation engines to warming buildings, propane has always been a part of American farm life. Now, you can be a part of propane's future and save money at the same time. The Propane Farm Incentive Program is a research initiative that provides farmers up to $5,000 towards the purchase of new propane-powered equipment. In exchange, participants share performance data to make tomorrow's ag operations more cost-effective, more efficient, and more environmentally friendly with propane. Getting started is simple. Visit propane.com slash farm incentive to see if you're eligible. The truth is hard to come by these days unless you listen to AgriTalk. Welcome back to the Free For All on AgriTalk. A big thank you to Emily Score, CEO, Growth Energy, for coming on, being part of the conversation in the last segment. Uh, Jim Wiesmeyer, Pro Farmer Policy Analyst, and Davis are here for the Free For All. Jim, uh, what did you make of the Farm Bill climate recommendations from the Food and Agriculture Climate Alliance? Primarily a rehash of what they've, uh, uh, you know, called for before, Chip. And I find with interest all these recommendations coming out by 
various groups usually don't put a price tag on them. They'll put it off to they want to <laughs> see what Congress is going to provide for funding. But in that 30 page report, thing that caught my eye is they waited uh, into the topic of farm program payment limits. And yeah. uh, they wanted to give the urgency of climate change, saying USDA should at least have the authority to waive income limits in some programs. Now, that's something to watch because that's a very sensitive topic up on uh, Capitol Hill, both pro and con. Right, right. Another one that caught my attention was encouragement uh, to include incentives or supports for the early adopters of these climate smart farming practices, you know, talking about cover crops and, and no-till and so on. Um, finding a way to give the early adopters some incentive to continue doing what they're doing. Legacy uh, payments, Chip. Absolutely. Yep. There is bipartisan agreement on that one. So that, that better be in, in any final uh, in, in any final legislation. What are you hearing, Jim? You were in Missouri talking with uh, Missouri pork producers? Yes. Did you hear any more on carbon credits? Wherever I go, Chip, Missouri yeah. and elsewhere, their farmers are very leery, as they well should be, regarding signing anything on farmer credits, even though there are very f good firms offering them, because yeah. primarily uh, they're getting on the cheap, uh, when you, especially when you compare what's being offered to what European farmers are being offered. Uh, so that's, yep. that's an easy conclusion. We have a ways to go on that, Chip. A yep. number of uh, Missouri uh, farmers and others, again, where I go, uh, they, they're asking, will owners of electric vehicles ever pay their fair share mm -hmm. of taxes relative to transportation issues? And that's a that's a very complex question because some the problem that many EV owners are facing is that some states are taxing electric vehicle drivers at rates even much higher than the average driver pays a driver pays in gas taxes and that's pushing uh, drivers for punishing them for choosing a zero emission alternative uh so uh, but but yet some ev drivers benefit from that federal tax incentive what up to seven thousand five hundred dollars so yeah. it's a complex uh oh it uh, is issue to to uh, to uh, answer but you know the, the there are two other quick things that i'm hearing from farmers again okay. wherever i go this bird flu situation is devastating oh and gosh. these impacted producers are looking at the billions of dollars paid out in disaster payments uh, mainly to uh, row crops some livestock but uh, little if any has been paid out relative to bird flu indemnity payments and they're they're focusing on what the biden administration and usda should be doing and also uh, congress uh, and then the other one, Chip, is all the acre, prime acres in the U.S. going into solar panels. Uh, there, oh. there was a 25,000 acre operation in Missouri where one farmer called it CRP on steroids. So they're asking, is there any way to make these acres dual purpose, having both solar panels and allowing some type of farming, sheep grazing, et cetera. Yeah. So wherever I go, I'm hearing those issues. Yeah, interesting. And when you talk about the impacts of bird flu out there, I'm not saying that all of this is the result of bird flu, but in the 2021-22 marketing year, we in the U.S. used 5.7 billion bushels of corn for feed and residual use. 
the estimate right now as of February is 5.275. I mean, <laughs> we lost 600 million bushels, 650 million bushels of demand someplace. And, yeah, and here's uh, connecting dots, Chip. Chicken prices are going to go higher because of the eggs and the bird and the bird flu. Two, that's going to make beef and pork even more competitive. Three, we're at a big price spread uh, lower than European pork prices, which means look over the next few months of the in- likely increase coming in U.S. pork exports. Yeah. Okay, all right. Prop twelve, decision time. When's it coming? Well, you never get a, even when you get the exact day the Supreme Court is going to announce it, you don't get a surprise. But I'm picking up from usually reliable sources, Chip, including hog producers, by the way, that yeah. uh, that a decision is coming uh, and relatively soon between now and early March. Yeah. Well, Ethan Lane uh, from NCBA was on the show yesterday. We asked him about it, and it he, he said you know, within the next couple of days we might be getting it. Uh, so we we need to need to get that as uh, and, and uh, get it out there as quickly as we can. Okay. Yeah. Vilsack, Vilsack, uh, USDA Secretary Vilsack says that there will likely be a dispute settlement request under USMCA regarding Mexico's planned ban of GMO corn. Yeah, he did say that. And he said not to pursue the case would put the U.S. in a difficult position with other trading partners. So right. he was he, he he was correct there. And he denied immigration issues were, were not a factor in the U.S. Uh, having already brought uh, not having already brought a, uh, a case against Mexico. But but there was a uh, uh, another official, uh, U.S. Special Ag Negotiator Doug McCallop. Yeah. He said the U.S. is currently reviewing a response from Mexico and that there would be something coming. There's this word soon again. He said Mexico is quietly granting approvals to applications yep. for new genetically modified plant traits. So I think that there's some progress going to become up, you know, coming up very soon, Jeff. Yeah, and, and he says that uh, it, it appears that Mexico is interested in finding a solution to this. Uh, yes. You know, and I think a lot of the importers in Mexico are very interested in finding a solution to this um, because the importers of the GMO white corn in particular are very happy with the product that they're getting, Jeb. That's my understanding. It's this is a government issue in Mexico. It's not an industry issue is is the read that I continue to get on it. Is that right? Yes. And, uh, if, you know, with I was at the Missouri pork uh, meeting yep. uh, earlier this week. And you think they're not watching this because oh. if it did turn into a trade flap, yep. uh, Mexico usually hits U.S. Uh, ham exports there. So, you yeah, bet. this is a big issue, good, Chip. But again, work, this, guys. Is, this is also a political issue in Mexico. Jim, we're out of time. Sue Martin, Ag and Investor Services this afternoon.